Bob and Jeremy's Conflap. The Reality Podcast. Morning, Blake. Morning, sir. How are you getting on with that Hermann Goering cipher? Well, another one has come through, sir. It's uh, him to his mother again. Is he asking for another dress? Absolutely, sir. I want her to send another one down. Hmm, I imagine it'll need to be a bit bigger this time with all that massive eating he's doing. Not wrong there, sir. If you don't mind me asking, have you got on with Grace? Oh, rather well, actually. I'm going to meet her at the meet her at the dance later for a drink, so I'm rather excited about that. Since she started working down at the bomb, I hear she's doing rather well. I say, you haven't got a cigarette, have you, old chap? No, I'm all out of my players. You couldn't pick me up some, could you, dear chap? Oh, good idea. I'll pop down to the naffy and get you uh, get you six packs for the weekend. I think it's going to be rather busy, one thing and another. Now, I must get on. I must decode this message from Himmler to Hitler. Could be rather fascinating. I'll say. See you at the dance, sir. Oh, absolutely. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. You're listening to a new episode of Bob and Jeremy's Conflab, and I'm joined by my erstwhile co-speaker, Bobby Morell. And uh, we have an interesting topic for you today. So where were we yesterday, Bobby? Well, yesterday we had a team build. And those of you who heard our team building do's and don'ts episode a few weeks ago, we took some of our own advice and we took your your good self, me, Lorraine, and Anne, to Bletchley Park. Jeremy, tell us about Bletchley Park. Well, where do I start? It is the home of the Codebreakers. And it played a vital part in the Second World War, intercepting messages, codes, and trying to decipher them. And it's come to popular appeal through the efforts of Benedict Cumberbatch and co with their film Enigma. Actually, I need to correct you there, his film was The Imitation Game. Sorry, The Imitation Game, the one with Kate Winslet and Do Grey Scott is Enigma, correct, which correct. we could argue is slightly inferior to The Imitation Game. Oh, I think we can argue that, but that's another point. It is an interesting site to visit, and what you learn, of course, is that the Germans had absolutely no idea through the war that we had broken their code. If they had thought there was a chance of that, the result of the war would have been very different. So this top secret place was created. It was bought in 1938. It was up and running by the start of the war in 1939. And the whole purpose of the place was to take any message, and these messages were freely interceptable through the airwaves, and then decode it as quickly as possible. And initially, this was done purely by clever brains trying to work out the different codes that were being used. And this became very, very difficult indeed. And the thing that we learnt was that the Germans had a machine. In fact, they had two machines. The main machine that was used in the field was called the Enigma machine. And that machine was used to send totally uncomprehensible messages Mm. to other people in the field. And the only way you could decipher those messages was if you had an Enigma machine set to the exact same specification. So it was a really, really hard thing to crack. And through geniuses like Alan Turing and various others that we learnt about, we were able, the Allies were able to break that code 
so that millions of messages that the Germans sent that they thought were completely secret, we had access to. And that knowledge gave us the power to decide which pieces of information we would act on, and those things that we did militarily helped us win the war. So I think that's a pretty fair summary, don't you? I do. It's, it's lovely. And um, it's very interesting because as you walk around, you see these huts. What did they do in them, Joe? Well, they had teams. And I think what we should say now is they're mostly full of women. Women who, from the photographs you've got, have grown too much hair that they spend some time keeping up and out of the way of the wires and the machine. <laughs> so they're growing their hair as, as is their want. And they are working on a whole series of machines and using their wherewithal to, well, as, as we've already said, they've got to intercept, then you've got to decipher, then you've got to translate, because you've got to remember lots of German speakers are working at Bletchley Park who understand the language. Uh, and then you're cross-referencing. So there's so many different teams in Hut B, Hut 8, all doing slightly different things. And what's also very interesting is the internal secrecy, because Dolly, who's in Hut B, may not be able to talk to Mavis in Hut C and know exactly what each other are doing, or they might know elements of what they're doing. But as it goes up the line, because if anybody started to talk and there would have been, there'd probably been a ton of German spies knocking around Bletchley trying to chat these women up all the time. No, no because yeah. Bletchley was entirely secret. Oh, no, that's true. They didn't even know about it. Ah, well, well, we think that. I think it's pretty clear they didn't know they did they had they would have changed their codes that's the point they had to keep stum nobody knew quite what they were working on because that element of secrecy was so important and it was an enormous operation so there's nine thousand people going into the site there there's also a site in wadden there's some stuff going on in disraeli's home in high wickham there's a few bits dotted about but we're talking about nine thousand people being deployed to try and crack as Bob said, the Enigma, which was a, a Lorentz machine, I believe, that the Germans used. No, the, the Lorentz was another one. The Enigma was the main one. The Lorentz oh, was, was it? We, oh, one. I thought the actual technical name was Lorentz. No, that was another machine. Yes. Um, now, the other thing, just, just to give you an example of how effective this was, uh, we were also cracking Japanese codes as well. Mm, yeah. And there was a great example where they received a message which said the Japanese were planning to attack our fleet, the British fleet, in Indonesia. And we had no idea of this. And the commander of that fleet was immediately informed that the Japanese were planning to do this. He took steps to disperse the fleet so that it wasn't attackable. And that one action meant that that fleet was able to continue to fight with full force and B, not be attacked by the Japanese, and imagine the effect of that over months and months and months. Had we been surprised by that attack, many ships would have been sunk, thousands of lives would have been lost. It would have severely weakened our ability to wage war in that area. So some of these messages are absolutely vital. We also, and if you go now, and we urge you to go and visit this place, there's a D-Day exhibition with a new film. And again, it was a Japanese ambassador, General Oshima. Correct. Who was meeting Hitler and sending reports back to Japan. And they were all instrumental in believing the lie that we were going to try and attack France from Calais. The other thing about these coding is you can also send out your own messages, hoping that the Germans are intercepting them, which they were. And we're sowing the seeds of we're coming in through Calais, we're coming in through Calais. And of course, we didn't. We came in through Normandy. 
that's particularly interesting. They intercepted Yoshima's one saying they're definitely coming in from Calais. And actually they know, they also found out that Oshima had dinner with Hitler and Hitler told Oshima that they were coming yeah, through. Yeah, that's it. That's Hitler it. was yeah. convinced. Now yeah, that Because made... he said during the dinner, didn't he? And Oshima reported that straight back to the rest of the Japanese. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. So I think it, it was an incredibly interesting place to visit. And also you realise that what they were doing was creating technology that previously yeah. did not exist at all. The very first computers, the very first mechanized systems that were able to put some information in one end and bring out different information at the other end. That's what they were yeah. creating using very primitive cog-related technology. They were able to do that by knowing certain root codes. They were then able to use the machine to work out what the message was saying. That's an incredible thing to have started with pen and paper in 1939. And by 1945, you've got many of these machines. The US took some of these machines to use uh, in their own war as well. That is, a, is such an advancement in technology. And it comes from not just British brains, from Polish and, and other brains that were working in that place to, to create the way that we could quickly decipher these messages. And so it was incredibly impressive. And I think another point that we must focus on is that the vast majority of people in this location would have finished the war, gone back to their lives, and mm -hmm. nobody would have known what they had done, what their contribution had been, how their work, how their cleverness had contributed to us winning the war. And yeah. that's really impressive. And it, it may just made us think that Within any organisation, within any large organisation, very often there are people who are sitting in the back, if you like, metaphorically, who are working, doing something which is relatively mundane, and yet it is effective and important and essential. And without that information, the organisation would not function so effectively. And I just wonder if we are all conscious of those people we recognise. I mean, a lot of the work was incredibly mundane, repetitive. In a sense, they're going to an office, even though it's, you know, the, these huts and it's quite primitive, some of the building. There is a mansion house as well. The last owner, Herbert Leon, allowed it to be taken over, requisitioned, if you like. There's a nice quote that was one of the walls yesterday that links on to what you're saying, who was the head administrator of the entire site, Alan Bradshaw. And he says, the trouble with administration is that so many people outside its sphere fondly and erroneously imagine they know so much more about its apparent simpleness that it should ever appear so simple is a great compliment. <laughs> so I thought that was really funny. So we know that it, it, it is, it's mundane, it's repetitive, but only through their actions of doing that grafting did, did they reach any kind of breakthrough. You're listening to Bob and Jeremy's Conflab brought to you by Reality Training. Reality Training are a leading sales and management training company specialising in helping big brands do much better through increasing their sales, their customer experiences, and the way that their managers deal with their people. You can find out much more about us at our website, realitytraining.com.
The other thing that's, that's interesting to say is that some Dutchmen had invented a machine to send messages to another machine. And it was originally pioneered for commercial messages. Hmm. So I, I'm going to send you some financial information about the cost of a bridge, but I can't let anyone else intercept this message because they're paying for the bridge. So I only want the, the people administrating it in the city to know what the materials are costing us or whatever. And then, of course, this technology starts within the First World War, and some of the first people at Bletchley Park had even worked on messaging in the First World War, and they'd been held on. Some of them didn't, didn't make it much further, and there was often changes of personnel as we went into the early 40s because they were near the end of their careers. The volume of the amount of meals per day, I think it was 25,000 meals per day, 40 buses bussing people in from what they're called billeted, you know, where they're staying. Some of them are requisition houses, and there's quite a high stat of privately arranged. <laughs> I enjoyed that. 1,568. That means my cousin Flo, she lives in Stony Stratford, so she says she can put me up. So that's no problem at all. I think we must talk about smoking. So just oh, about yeah. every picture, every picture, if it's a, you know, they've all either got a cigarette in their mouth or in their hand or a pipe. Okay, so everyone's smoking. And on every little desk in every office that you walk through, there's an ashtray, a, a packet of cigarettes or a little tin of tobacco, whatever it may be. And I just think it's quite funny that we live in a land now which is so anti-smoking, we're even thinking of banning it completely. And yet back then, if you look at that place, just about everybody chain-smoked all day yeah. long yeah. and had ashtrays full. And you can just imagine what the cigarette bill would have been for a place like that. I mean, it would have been colossal. Well, 9,000 people, let's just say mm. that probably 50% were smokers. That's oh, 4,500. Well, if, if it is 50%, we're talking about 5,000 people having a cigarette a day. If they were smoking 20 a day, oh, it's, it's astronomical. Yeah. Nearly all of them probably didn't do too well in their retirement um, <laughs> with their various conditions. Yes. You're able, as you walk around, to go into these huts where people work. But you can also go into people's offices and desks. And as Bob's saying, the ashtrays are sort of screwed into the desk so you can see them. And then there's some stuff about, I think he's called Deniston, who ran it for a bit before mm -hmm. Travis took over. Yeah. And it, it talks about his management style. And it says, Commander Denniston's management style was light touch. <laughs> he allowed people to work things out, get on with it, and saw that recreation was highly important. And that's why he encouraged dances and, uh, you know, uh, beer, announcements of beer. I photographed that on the wall. There's beer available between 12 and 2, and then again between 6 and 9. So they're all, they're all drinking at lunchtime. Isn't that fantastic? So, so you're having a few pints, chain smoking all day, I mean, what a different world. And, and yet Back they work for three hours and then carry on. I'm sure it wasn't always like that. But It's a very good example of how to win a war. But, uh, but there we are. Very British way. Let's talk about, um, there, there is a very specific exhibition that's related to Alan Turing, who, of course, is the, oh. the key mastermind in all of this. And it took till the 90s for him to receive a public apology oh, via Later than was that. Was it the 90s? Was it the 2000s? 2007, 2009, something like that. It was much oh, later. gosh. Yeah, extraordinary. So that exhibition is very upsetting, very moving, because just because of his sexual preferences, he was, you know, he, he was illegal to be gay, of course, right up until when? Persecuted for it. When was that law changed? 
that didn't the nineteen seventies, the late sixties, I think. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So he's he's persecuted. He's given female hormones. It, it just you know all that's thoroughly depressing, and he takes his own life. Mm. And yet, without his extraordinary work that he was the by far the field leader in, him and Welchman as well, and other people, that we'd never have cracked this. And of course. You know, isn't it such a sad demise for somebody who's pioneered how we shorten the war through their efforts? I think the other thing, Bob and I were talking about this when we sat down in the cafe afterwards. I got very excited about a potential meeting. We should talk about this because this is going to be our new thing, isn't it? A potential meeting between Oppenheimer and Turing. So many of you listening to this, probably over the summer, you were subjected to either Barbie and Oppenheimer or both. And if you've seen the film Oppenheimer, you'll know that uh, he spends a bit of time at Cambridge. We That's did right. look up the years. Was he there in 25, Oppenheimer? He was mid-20s and Turing was there in 31. So, you know, it's conceivable that if Oppenheimer that visited met. Cambridge in the 30s, they would have met. Yeah. And even if they didn't, wouldn't that be a great drama to have Oppenheimer, yeah. whose physicist brain could theoretically create an atomic bomb, and Turing, whose mathematical brain could work out the pathways of codes so as to mm. decipher any message. If you think about those, those two things, there's, there's a great example of where science triumphs over so many other things. You know, it's really... There's crazy. also the contention that one of those figures is instrumental in destruction. Yes. And the other's working also on preventing you could argue but but you can't really argue because it then enables you to choose what action you take absolutely right but i think the other if if you think about both of them they both did things which arguably or specifically shortened the war so that's an important thing they think that bletchley park shortened the war by at least two years and i think at one point there was something like seven million uh, deaths a year taking place because of the war and uh, if you think about that 14 million over two years saved that's significant now Oppenheimer slightly different they believe that his actions prevented the US from having to invade Japan which would have cost hundreds of thousands of civilian and military lives whatever both actions shortened the war and brought the war to an end more quickly and of course, the actions continue. Uh, Bletchley Park moved to Cheltenham, which now GCHQ, and of course, nuclear bombs are everywhere. But at the same time, those particular actions made a massive, massive difference. And so, yeah, we thought it would be lovely to bring them together before they did all this and see how their mm. brains would have worked. And we thought about having a, a protagonist who in the 30s could have been a German who would have seen things through a slightly different lens. Yeah. And uh, that would be quite an interesting drama. Mm, I think it'd be lovely. The other thing I suppose that's worth mentioning is that there was an also a little specialist exhibition about data visualisation. And the other thing that we've already said, but maybe not made it blatant, is this really is the birth of computing. It's Absolutely. the birth of, you know, creation of computers. There's the, the, the museum of the, you know, of computing is there as well. So... There was a temporary exhibition about visualising data and how we look at data and how data now can be used for everything. There was a little specialist exhibition of how MK Dons, League Two, are using the data to look at where they're effective around the goal. Players can wear 
wearable IoT stuff and then kick a ball and say, you're not very good on the right, you need to come in the middle. You know, all that kind of analytics uh, that is endless, you know. That's not the greatest example, is it? If you're looking using MK Dons. Of MK Dons, no. It did make me laugh. They said, you know, MK Dons is probably somebody who, who likes the club and is trying to help it on. I still go and watch them every now and again. It's just uh, upsetting that we've gone from the championship down to League Two. But, you know, bit wow. bit of bit of cash, we might get back up there. So back to the team build idea. And very loosely that uh, you stop focusing on all your problems. You stop looking very close to the things that you're doing and you're able to go off into a very different world. Instead of being facilitated, you can go off at your own pace, meet again later. We made sure we had coffee, we made sure we had lunch. You know, go off, come back, reconvene, share ideas and just see. It's very good to sort of stop. And instead of thinking, oh, I've got to go and, you know, be shot at. And if you listen to our team building do's and don'ts episode, you'll certainly get a look. We put this very much into the do, you know, a very different kind of team building there. There was a nice little bit of fun at one point, uh, which we have put on social media, where we were able to put on some 1940s clothing for a moment. And uh, that caused a moment of hilarity where where Jeremy's um, subaltern uh, specifics as an mm-hmm. chap really came across clearly. So I think it would be a great idea for people to visit Bletchley Park. It is an, an interesting place with lots of... Uh, thought behind it but also look it up there's loads of stuff about it online there's various films about it which um, you should watch and there's one other thing I I should add which I think is important not only did they break the codes Turing also worked out a mathematical system to decide whether they should act on the messages they were looking at now that is real genius because if you act too quickly on certain messages then it's clear that you've broken the codes and the Germans will change the codes and you can't allow that to happen. So they had to work out which things they would act on and which they wouldn't. And he created a mathematical system to do that. That's amazing. And I I think that, that, you know, that is real genius and very difficult, but, you know, he found out a way to do it. Extraordinary, isn't it, really, to have the patience and make those strong decisions. Indeed. So we hope you like that. We'll see you soon on another podcast. In the meantime, why don't you start sending some of your colleagues and friends messaging code and see if they can work it out. Yeah. Cheers for now. Bye. Bob and Jeremy's Conflab. The Reality Podcast. Podcast.